Hey, what's going on, good people? Welcome back for another episode of The Black Codes. This is your co-host, Donald Robinson, joined with the intelligent Savannah Bryant. Hi. And so we're here to bring you uh, a continuation of the recent series of episodes looking at the white gaze and talking about the overmaturation of black children, or not overmaturation, the maturation of black children and how America tends to view them as adults. And so, ironically... I have uh, my Woolen Hills track and field shirt on, and so that's where I coach track at. I went for a nice run in the Baltimore streets today, finishing my audio book, and I'm just really happy that the weather is, like, in the 70s. Yeah, those 90-degree days are painful. They really are, and you know what's also painful? 40-degree days. (laughs) True. I often say, I think... I just want to live the rest of my life at 70 degrees. For sure. Like, it's perfect. And so I got back, and I was thinking about our topic today, and we were actually chatting earlier about, I have this thing, and it's not completely unconscious, although this topic made me realize that I should even make it more conscious. And I coach high school track, and I often try to remind these kids that they're just kids. And that's partially because I'm young myself. And so I fit in this weird gray area of teenagers to where, like, they think you're either a teenager or you're grown. Mm-hmm. Like, kids, 16-year-olds cannot conceptualize what it's to be 26. Yeah, I couldn't. At 26, <laughs> I thought, you're not 26, though. Um, you're closer to 30. But... Way to put my age <laughs> out there. <laughs> but when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, probably even when I was in college... I thought by the time your late 20s came around, you were definitely, there was just a clear distinction between being a child and being an adult. Like there was a clear defining marker and you just kind of like step over that and now you're an adult. And it's not like that. You just (laughs) kind of keep living your day and all of a sudden you're 30 and you don't understand that as a kid. Yeah, as a matter of fact, once you get about 24, 25 and you start doing things very independently, you actually have this weird feeling of like, I should be an adult, but I actually don't feel like one. Right. You look at, you know, the people, your parents who are like in their 40s or 50s or like your older friends or older cousins and and uncles who are like in their 30s starting to have kids and you're feeling like, oh, they have kids, they have a mortgage, they have these responsibilities. And Mm -hmm. here I am waking up at 11 o'clock to go to brunch and getting drunk on Saturdays. Exactly. (laughs) And yet, you're still not a kid. And, you know, these teenagers that I'll coach, it's all teenagers. They want to become more independent. They want to take more responsibility in their lives, although they're just not mature enough to always know how to do that. They love to just consider themselves as sometimes grown. And I often enjoy putting them in their place, like, yo, you're just a kid. And not in this, like, aggressive way. It's just like, yo, kid, come here. All right, kid, good job. And just always reminding them that they're kids because in this world, outside of just a teenage desire to grow up and take on the world, which is, you know, admirable, the world likes to look at some of our kids when they're very young as, like, full-blown adults. Mm -hmm. And it's a long-standing American tradition to look at that. And so we want to talk about that today. And it's something that, you know, just in light of this, I often like want to now make sure I overtly tell them that it's also okay to be a kid. Yeah. 
I think uh, when you're when you are a kid, when you are a teenager, I think you maybe focus on the ways that your life is restricted by your age. And you're not dumb, you know, you still have a lot to learn, but as a teenager, you are starting to understand more, process more information. Socially, you're becoming independent. You're not, like, your parents aren't always taking you out for your, like, social engagement. Like, you're doing that on your own. So you slowly do start to get more and more independent and especially if you're working i know the whole thing that they used to say back in the day like once you start having sex people like to think that they're like grown and adults now but you can be engaging in all of that there is still a difference though you are still learning and you are technically still a minor so you shouldn't hmm, i don't want to say you shouldn't rush to grow up or that should like being grown shouldn't be the main thing on your mind I suppose but I do think that being a kid is looked at as a weakness you know like as a setback like no one takes me seriously so people do try to kids do try to get away from that when they want to be taken seriously obviously I think that that's a normal part of the evolution of human beings and this desire of teenagers to grow themselves up. I think where the folly comes in is when the adults buy into this notion mm-hmm. that those kids are actually grown up. Actually, you know, funny enough, in the book that I was just got done reading, this is one of the books in the Expanse series, and there's a certain part of the book where there's this um, revolting faction of people who live in the asteroid belt and who are, like, feeling oppressed by Earth and all this. So in their war against it, the leader of this party, his 15-year-old son, actually orders uh, a big part of getting stealth technology to send asteroids at Earth without them detecting it and literally almost blow up the whole planet. And so as this book story progresses, even this 15-year-old who just murdered billions of people actually has these moments of like weird feelings of his own maturity, his, even with his father and the leaders of this party, you know, they still treat him like a kid sometimes. They want to give him the stage to be an adult, but he's still learning what it means to be an adult, and he doesn't even really actually digest what he just did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on another note about why kids are just kids, what child can sit here and drink Jack Daniel's whiskey <laughs> at 10 in the morning on an empty stomach? That also is a great separator of why children should remain children. Okay. Um... Someone in Kentucky in, like, the 1910s or probably today would be willing to take you up on that bet. (laughs) And there is probably a 10-year-old child walking this day that could drink you underneath the table. (laughs) You know, and I would never want to meet that child because any child that should be able to drink me under the table, while I'm no stellar drinker, Mm -hmm. for a kid to drink me under the table, they got some baggage to unpack and I don't want to be there for it yeah I actually saw that I was in Florida house sitting uh, a few years ago and while I was down there um, I got taken to the guy who was who I was house sitting for his friend's house and there were a few of us there was whatever this little boy who was eight or nine fat 
white boy was drinking like a fifth of whiskey. And honestly, I'm going to keep it a buck. Probably should have called CPS <laughs> if I was that kind of person. Uh, but they were just like some backwoods, you know, there are part, people think like Florida, I think now people know more about Florida just being crazy as hell. Like it's not just Disney World in Miami. The other parts of Florida are like country. And he was in the backwoods and like the country part of Florida surrounded by trees and all of that. They lived back like in the cut. They had like alligators for pets. <laughs> they had a whole bunch of dogs, just like that kind of vibe. And yeah, this little boy would just drink. He was drinking whiskey while we were there. And I was like, oh, this, I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I definitely for a long time literally just thought about Florida as like Miami, Miami Vice, mm-hmm. Orlando, dolphins, it's crocodiles and alligators. And just kind of forget, like, what's in the middle of Florida? And old people, actually, also yeah. old people. And so, you know, as I got older and, like, learned more about Florida, I'm like, oh, it's, like, really country. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's like, being in Mississippi. We could write a book about Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Florida's an interesting place, for sure. There was the Florida, their, their scramble with the election of George Bush when mm-hmm. we were young kids. There's Florida's reaction to coronavirus. There's so many things about Florida. So many things about Florida. I actually went to Florida last year for like a little mini vacation before the start of track season because for any of you who are coaches out there, as much as we love coaching, you need a vacation. And sometimes you actually need a vacation before you actually start coaching. So every year I would actually go on a little mini vacation before I started coaching for the summer and the spring. That makes sense. And so I went down to Florida, went to Orlando, went to Cape Canaveral, went to NASA. But it was, you know, still interesting kind mm-hmm. of just seeing the different parts of Florida, like driving through there and like the landscape and how like swampy it can be. It was pretty cool. Word. So I think we can get into it. I think we can get into it, Savannah. Word. <sighs> okay. So I want to open this up with something that I found out a few years ago about a case that I found out a few years ago and it's not a clear um, direct link to the maturation of children but it goes to kind of show the ways that people white people law enforcement and our government kind of view black people like even as children Mm -hmm. so i want to say 2018 maybe early 2019 uh the second season of mine hunters which is on netflix um a case so that's mine hunters is based on the damn it's not the fbi it's like the behavioral uh unit so the psychology, like why people do the, the things that they do specifically with like serial killers is something that they were tracking. They were going to interview um, serial killers that were in prison to try to figure out like what, well, how does this happen? Mm-hmm. What is this? And they get pulled in on different cases that are happening as well. And one of the cases they get pulled in on is um, 
this huge case in Atlanta that starts in 1979. Black children are disappearing and some of their bodies are being found, some of them aren't. But yeah, so in 1979, what is known as like Atlanta's murdered and missing children start. And they estimate, they've kind of round about uh, 28 children, one girl, the rest are boys, and two men are murdered during a like three year span. So this starts in 79, and it's not until the next year, in July 1980, that the mayor, Atlanta's mayor, I believe Atlanta's first black mayor, uh, decides to create a task force to look into what the hell is going on. And at this point, eight bodies have been found, and there are several kids that are still actually missing. And while the task force is great, guess who the task force is made up of? Who? Atlanta police, the Atlanta Police Department, and the Georgia GBI. Um, Both of which have questionable relationships with the black community in Atlanta and in Georgia on a whole. So off the bat, it's like, okay, okay, (laughs) We, we see what's happening here. Fine, okay. Several more children go missing. Uh, several more are reco- their bodies are recovered. And in March of 81, Reagan, who's the president at the time, decides to give 1.5 million federal dollars to the task force to help to figure out what's going on. They end up catching someone, a young black man, Wayne Williams, I think he's 21, 22, 23 at the time when they find him. Uh, he is originally found like dumping. He's driving on a bridge. And at this point, they're desperate. And these bodies are being found along like banks or in the water and things. So they start, the task force starts a, a watch party and there are officers on the state, um, local, and some FBI level placed at different bridges around the city to try to see if they catch someone in the act of dumping a body. And towards the end of this uh, search, this goes on for several weeks, and towards the end when they're like wrapping up because they're not finding anything, I think it's like 3 a.m., an officer says he hears a splash, and on the other end, coming off the bridge, they kept, they find someone in the car driving and his name is Wayne Williams he's like a talent scout he says it's like 3 a.m and he says that he's on the bridge at that hour because he has a meeting at like 7 and he wanted to make sure he knew how to get to the meeting destination that was his that's what he said very questionable bro you could have said you were going like a late night food run or something yeah anything else (laughs) but that's what he says and that it it's really downhill from for him from there so they find fibers that are from his carpet that are like on a few of the bodies and apparently this carpet 
is kind of rare like only a few people in Atlanta even have this like weird green carpet installed in their house and so that's kind of what they get him on he knew a few of the um boys that went missing they were interested in becoming entertainers singers and I think he was a DJ at a radio station so for them or how it's presented to the public they have found their guy and he ends up being arrested and given two life sentences years later it comes out through like his different appeal processes that the prosecution had opened up a case uh looking into the kkk so obviously all these kids are going murdered they're going missing and and they're murdered if they don't come back i mean i highly doubt they're just they're they not off. here yeah they're not They'd here 40 something years old exactly the black community is not having it they don't believe that williams is the one that did it i think the woman's name is carol bell her name starts with a c camille maybe one of the first boys that are murdered and missing says that wayne williams was the 30th victim she doesn't believe that he was involved it was like look he did a couple of them but we're gonna just throw everything at him exactly they were they were under the belief that it was the kkk that it was some white people coming in and taking their kids and how the um law enforcement during their investigation how they kind of justified not going that route is these kids didn't put up a struggle like no one ever seen a struggle ensue or a fight ensue they would have gotten into a car with someone that they trusted with someone that they knew from the community if it would have been a white person coming in and this is at the time i mean it's still today but this community is pretty black and white people are coming through because like they're different workers and situations like that but the police and the the task force are saying if white people were coming in and snatching up children someone would have saw that this is also the late 70s early 90s where kids are just playing also so there's that and I guess what does tie into the the um, maturation aspect is they tried to vilify the victims. Oh, they were looking for drugs. Oh, they were bad kids. Oh, they were up to no good. And basically trying to say, like, well, that's why they ended up getting, uh, you know, going missing and being murdered because they were up to no good. And if they would have behaved then that wouldn't have happened. There's this constant story of, well, if you would have just behaved, if you would have just done this, if Mm -hmm. you would have just done that, these things wouldn't have happened to you. And there's this constant question we ask when we look at, you know, these cases, when you look at very modern things like Tamir Rice or in Pittsburgh, it was Antoine Rose II and, and, and countless other cases where it's like, if you would have just complied, you wouldn't die. And there's this, you know, immediate question that it seems like those who make that argument never seem to answer of why does anything let alone you know someone unarmed who actually didn't do a crime but even someone who did do a crime that wasn't murder why are they why is murder the immediate 
justification justice why are the you know why are law enforcement not even just law enforcement you look at uh um um you know george zimmerman and the mm-hmm. whole that whole situation why is it even you know a, a citizen why is murder on site justice and then people are arguing that the actual victim deserved it and in these cases you have these law enforcement who are insinuating and and even the public at times that well they deserved it or they shouldn't have been doing this and it's like no people even if these kids were out just playing or doing whatever but even in modern times or like more recent i should say there are people who maybe have done a small crime and why do they deserve to die yeah they don't but that's part of the issue so Williams lawyer does try to appeal once they find out because that is illegal like if they start if the prosecution opens an investigation into someone else they are supposed to share that and they never shared it and I mean think about who is making up the task force uh, the police and um, people on the state level, the law enforcement on the state level. In Georgia. If, in Georgia. And if you know anything about Georgia and law enforcement, they have really close ties with the KKK. Like, a lot of them are one and the same. So that's denied, though. His appeal is denied. They said some bullshit as to why it was justified. In 2014, the Department of Justice does inform Williams' lawyer that at least one of the forensic lab technicians that worked on his case was under investigation for mishandling evidence. Mm. And this comes after a multi-year investigation into the FBI's hair and fiber department. So they found that basically over 30 years, 90% of the hair and fiber cases had errors Mm -hmm. and about 95 of hair examiners gave misleading testimonies in court. He was denied again and, or I'm not sure if he was denied again or if he's just not up for, oh no, he was denied again. Because parole is something different. So he, he was denied. Um, they said, fuck out of here. I don't think he's even up for it again until 2027. 2027. He's up for, uh, he's eligible for parole in 2027. And the mayor, uh, Mayor Lance Bottoms of Atlanta, she, I, I think in 2018, um, basically brought this case back to light and said, we're opening another investigation. And this this is interesting to me. So I'm a huge Travis Scott fan. I love Travis Scott. He has this song with uh, Andre 3000. It's at the beginning. It's like the intro to uh, Birds in the Trap Sing McKnight. And I have listened to that song so many times. And it wasn't until, so I had started, HBO has a documentary called Atlanta's a Murder, Atlanta's Murdered and Missing Children. If you're interested in learning more about this case, I advise watching that. Also check out uh, Mindhunters, I guess. Um, obviously, it's like historical fiction. Well, it's historical, but it's still a TV show. Um, and the HBO doc is more uh, of a documentary, obviously, with like research and um, interviews and investigation. But 
Andre 3000's verse on that song is literally talking about growing up in Atlanta during <laughs> during this time mm. and like uh, he's talking about this case which it just clicked like I think in June of this year I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm like hold on that's what he's talking about like I knew what he was saying all this time and it just like it just clicked that he's actually talking about this case so yeah I just wanted to share that because maybe it has happened I know there's a lot of stuff coming out with like sex trafficking and all and you know that um which is a whole nother situation but I can't think of any other case where so many white children were able to be snatched up and missing like in one city and it takes so long for there to be any real investigation mm -hmm. and even in an investigation that happened was that a real investigation or were they just trying to close you know close the case yeah it's like look you did a couple of these lane and there's you know 20 some more and it's like look you did all of them and that's the end of this whole situation yeah i think he had connections i think wayne williams had like direct connections with two or th they only um like convicted him of two murders and like a bunch of other charges i think it was like connection with two of the children but two of the the older boys that were murdered is what he actually was convicted on and they wrapped up these other cases without even continuing their investigation and 28 kids is a lot he's he's not a big man and i don't know him and i never investigated him i think that just based on kind of what he did and like the timeline i'm sure it's possible that maybe he could have killed one or two but 28 i don't know and there's other evidence that other some of these other kids it was actually a different situation like witnesses are testifying that this was another thing they saw someone else but it was a black kid so they just bundled them all together and with the conviction of wayne williams that was the end for uh the courts and mm. law enforcement that was the end of that case for them yeah so kind of looking at even some more of these uh court issues and law enforcement so there have been a number of cases that have happened where you know there have been teenage white boys who have committed large murders and have been taken away in handcuffs you think about um the dylan roof shooter from a few years ago who was taken away in handcuffs and even taken to go get some food and he had literally killed seven people admitted to it and was just like i think it was nine nine i'm sorry nine people and just walked away, you know, not scotch-free, but he walked away scotch-free to then go to court. walked away with his life. Walked away with his life. And there were incidents like Tamir Rice, who had actually done nothing, done nothing. Somebody accused him of their suspicion of this boy playing with a, t a, a, a toy gun. And the person who even called it wasn't, like, dead set that it was, like, some serious thing, but was nervous because it's a black child doing something. They thought it was a black man. Mm -hmm. And so the police within 
mere seconds, partial seconds, just open fired on them. And, you know, other situations to where maybe someone did actually commit a crime, and yet shooting on sight was their death sentence. That was their sentence right there. And then you look at even this year, you have this Kyle guy who goes to um, a protest and ends up, you know, getting in creating two murders and then walking past the police with an AR-15 and yet he walked away literally they told him like to move and get out of there they didn't even do anything towards him he he had blood on his hands like he'd killed people yeah there was something that Sean King posted I think earlier today um a man Jason Masik message uh, shot and killed his wife, shot two children next door, and then shot about 40 rounds at the police and was still able, like, to be successfully uh, arrested and taken to jail without dying, which is interesting. Um, but I think to your point of disproportionate consequences, even if it's not directly being murdered at you know on site the way that kids are even convicted like there's a long standing I think in Pennsylvania uh, a judge got it was a whole thing Um, basically the judge was he the judge was um, oh I thought you were going to start talking do you know what I'm do you know what case I'm talking Mm -hmm. about do you remember his name Yeah, uh, I could pull it up but the judge got um, sentenced. He was literally a part of a ring of getting yeah. convictions mm-hmm. so that they could go to jail because he was getting paid out from that. Mm-hmm. And like when you think about that high-level corruption, there's all those corrupt things that happen at the you know smaller level that are not that. But his name was Mark Ciavarella, and he got sentenced to 28 years because he was in a bribery scandal with the state's juvenile detention uh, justice sentence. Yeah. Justice system, sorry. Yeah, that shit was, I mean, crazy. So they called it Kids for Cash. And when you think about it, they're, you know, it's funny that they even called it Kids for Cash because they're not looking at them as kids. No, they're not. When you think about even where we went to school at, there were a a series of campus rapes that happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these were all white-on-white rapes. And... How the campus responded, you know, it was response of more of women being safe and not hard pursuing and hard lining about, you know, men not attacking these women or have getting in these questionable situations where there's not consent. And yet let it have been me and there would be a very, very serious problem or, you know, let that have been some black uh, boy up at the university causing all this or even when those situations arise, I mean... When you look at the history of the United States, the Tulsa race riots literally started at an accusation of rape. There, when you look at Emmett Till, this sense that this he was a teenager and they didn't look at him that way. He was accused of catcalling this woman mm-hmm. and he got drugged out of his house and killed and he was a boy. Yeah. Just <laughs> and that which I think we never really touched on Emmett Till, or 
I don't remember if we touched on it that much when we talked about the like savage, like the black savage lie. Um, so yeah, that idea that like women need women do need to be protected. Rape happens at a alarming rate, and even if it's not direct sexual violence, the situations that women have to deal with because of men's view or thoughts on their autonomy is like a whole separate thing especially when we throw in race but yeah the way that this kid Emmett Till a child was able and and they justified they tried to justify it and no one did any time for that and and that woman had said Years that it didn't later. happen. She yeah. was like in her 90s and yeah. said, oh, that didn't happen. And nothing even happened to her. Yeah. Um, damn. Another story that got a lot of attention a few years ago was the Khalif Browder situation, who at 16 was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack and sent to Rikers, serves three years at Rikers, two of them basically in solitary confinement without being tried or convicted of a crime. Now, I'm not, I don't know what kind of book bag this was, but I can't imagine stealing a backpack ever constitutes being sent to prison for any length of time at all. Yeah. Like, I'm having a hard, like, like from that, I just have always had a hard time really trying to understand how one and one makes two in this situation. It just, it makes no sense, especially when you have the situation with like Brock Turner, who is legally an adult, is caught mid-rape, like raping a woman. He is caught in the act and he goes to, you know, they have the court trial and that fucking judge gives him a six-month sentence because he doesn't want to ruin his life. And even the prosecutors wanted years. Like, you know, the, 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 the his own lawyers, you know, they were actually settling to for years and the judge lowballs it all. Yeah, it would be the defense, not the, the defense. prosecution. Well, the prosecution yeah. went like 20-some years. Yeah. And then in defense was going to settle for like something in the teens. Because you would think if you get caught raping someone um, and she's in, like, she testifies, she, you know, writes a letter, like you would think that you would get more, you would get an actual like sentence sentence. So he gets sentenced to six months and only ends up serving three. And um, outside of the judge and his comment, his dad is also like, I just, why should he be punished for 20 minutes of action? Why should he be punished for the rest of his life for 20 minutes of action? And it's like, so that's the vibe in in y'all's house. I could see why he thought what he was doing was cool because I mean, the dad really gave us everything we needed to know about the, their their thought process. What the dad said was literally horrendous mm-hmm. because in and what we're talking about, the dad took this grown this grown adult 
and boyified him and, mm-hmm. and painted this picture that Brock was this innocent boy with this hugely bright future as a fucking and, rapist. And the judge does as well. Like, and the judge buys right into it. The judge probably already thought that before the dad even said Yes. Oh, you're a Stanford swimmer. I think he was on the... He's an all-American swimmer. Yeah, was like he that. was he trying out for the Olympics or something? I don't know if he was. I don't really care if he was. I but don't care He had the either. potential or something I don't like ca- that. I don't care either. Um, it's just the fact that they saw all of this potential mm-hmm. and said, "It was a mistake. We get it. You do have to do so- like you do have to serve a punishment for your crime, but we're not going. We're not going to do anything that will ruin your life." And he, at this age, is an adult. He's over 18 when this happens. And he is able to get that off. And he's now somewhere in Ohio, I think, like, appealing his case. He works as, like, a factory worker. Yeah. Um, And we kind of know what happens with Khalif. He is kind of tortured while he's in prison and never mentally recovers. And unfortunately commits suicide. And his case got dismissed. His case got thrown out, dismissed. They ended up deciding to create some laws to not allow people to stay um, to stay in jail mm-hmm. without their you know trial being uh, scheduled um, and and some, something along those lines. And you look at a boy who was a teenager, got allegedly stole a book bag, got sent to Rikers over the book bag, <laughs> like a book bag. This wasn't not that anything that he could have done that short of like murder or rape or some hard felony should have sent him the records but like this wasn't like some he stole a money truck tried to rob a money truck like this yeah. was an alleged book bag that he was found to not have taken yeah and it's rikers like in new york city think about and this is think about all the crime and shit that happens in new york city so stealing a book bag is deserving to be housed with with a three thousand dollar bail this book bag Come couldn't on. have been more than 50 bucks. It, yeah. Um, and two other cases I want to brief. I'm not going to go into them. It's just something that I noticed earlier this week. Um, I watched the Yusuf Hawkins doc also on HBO. Have you seen that? Do you I know about yet. that? So it's about this uh, young black boy. I believe he was also like 16. Him and a group of his friends, black and Latino boys, go into this neighborhood, another neighborhood in Brooklyn, to go look at a car. One of their friends is is thinking about purchasing a car that they found ad in the newspaper. And at the same time, um, so this neighborhood is very white, it's very Italian, and uh, there's this girl who was having a birthday party she says that um well there's differing sides of the story the the ex there's an ex-boyfriend who basically says that the girl threatened that she was gonna bring her new black boyfriend and 20 black boys with him and they were gonna beat him up and her story was different she I actually kind of forget what she says, but it was different, basically putting all the blame on him. He tries to put all the blame on her. Um, 20 black boys do not show up. It's four or five of them, I think, that come out of the train station, walk around the corner. There's like a little candy store. The girl lives above the candy shop. 
and all these boys, her boyfriends, homeboys, boys from the neighborhood, assume that these are the black boys that she was talking about and corner them. And I think right before they actually start to like fight them or like hit them, uh, one, one of the boys, Yusef, gets shot and he dies. And watching, so they end up, you know, through their investigation, they arrest five boys in connection with this murder. The camera footage of when they got arrested, all of them have their, all of them have like blankets over their heads. So you can't see any of their faces. When you looked at the Central Park Five case, I don't recall them being able to cover their faces. I think their faces were out and exposed for everyone to see. And it's little things like that. They were still in the um, position of investigation. But as soon as they're arrested, these black and Latino kids in the Central Park Five case are vilified, you know, immediately. Donald Trump takes a fucking ad out and says they did it, locked them up, whatever. He goes on a, a rant about them. Um, and these white kids who are accused of murdering someone are given the bent there. We won't show your face right now until we like get more to the bottom of it. It's like that little it was only on the screen for not even four seconds. But that image of them being walked into I think the police station or out of the police station into their cars whichever but them being allowed to cover their face was an interesting thing Mm. to notice like protect it's almost like to protect them yeah and because they're kids there's still sense that where the bias comes in when we think about this historically even going back to you know 17th 18th 19th century there is an innocence that comes along with these young white kids that black children from the start were never afforded you were expected to be working the fields that like as a preteen you were expected to serve in the house as a woman as a preteen you were expected to be working and doing these things and as history progresses there is this ingrained culture that these black children don't get to be innocent mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. These boys from Atlanta, they didn't get to be innocent children. Khalif Browder, Browser wasn't given the benefit of doubt that maybe he did not actually take a book bag, and there was no evidence that he did. And you look at these cases now, the central provider, there was no protection of their innocence but for these young white children you look at dylan reef look at this cow guy you know all these most of america's mass shootings that were not targeted were largely young white boys Mm -hmm. who still had their innocence protected as boys who were mentally unstable or had all these different problems and when you think about kids who grow up in poverty in, in these poor neighborhoods where there's violence they have their own PTSD. Mm-hmm. When you think about gang violence and different things, A, those things are generally targeted. But even within that, those P- PTSD, there's 
plenty of these songs that come out that people want to rag on, but a lot of them are these artists talking about their trauma from growing up where they grew up at, and no one gives them innocence uh, as being young boys, even though they are boys when they release this. They're boys when they go through this. And, you know, as we segue to our next part of this, looking at, as you said that, there was a noise complaint at a pool party. And it was a bunch of black teenagers having this pool party, whatever. And the cops show up. And so black, we, we, I was taught as a kid, you cops come running at you, you, you go the other way. Mm-hmm. And so there's a video footage of this cop tackling a teenage girl, a grown man tackling this teenage girl in a bathing suit and like fizzly manhandling through the ground over a noise complaint. Where's her protection of innocence? I've never seen a white child be attacked that way, ever. I've never seen a white child who actually did a crime be attacked and killed. Or a white girl. Especially a white girl. The assumption of innocence over white women is not that they should not have the innocence. They should have the innocence. But the fact that black women and black girls, I mean cannot get that assumption of innocence as kids is a major part of this problem. Yeah. Um, So while I was kind of looking through articles and studies and information, I kept finding this like reoccurring kind like idea that, let me preface this by saying child sexual abuse is wrong period there's never a justification for it there's never any allowance for it just no period but there's this idea that when white girls are sexualized it is it is specifically because they look like little girls when black girls are sexualized it's like but you're built like an adult oh i thought you were grown because of your body and so there, this like maturation is forced upon them because they've developed or they're in the developing process. And it's kind of used as a justification for men to say, oh, I was confused. Oh, I thought you were 18. Oh, but you look da-da-da-da-da, you know? And in that continuing search, there's um, Georgetown actually re- did a survey did a study, like a expansive study on adultification bias and the adultification of black girls and how as young as five adults, grown adults, uh, kind of start thinking that black girls don't need as much protection, they don't need as much nurturing or as much patience and essentially love as their white counterpart. They're looked at as more independent. They're looked at as knowing more things, uh, like more adult topics, specifically sex. There's this idea that they're just so educated. Black women are so educated on um, sex. And these, this survey, this study, is adults. Adults think this way about black children, about black girls. Like these are adults that are are saying these things and like I was telling you earlier I've always known of 
of black girls being um, looked at as older and this idea of them not being protected as much and looking as, as like the guilty party. But when you really start to think about who is spreading this kind of information, it's adults. You look at on, on multiple ends, there are these white adults who feel that these black kids are just so grown and there's research to go behind that and the legacy of that. And then you look at, even on our end, growing up, I got lectured about these things, about how there are certain things I could not do. I, I was taught that I didn't have the presumption of innocence and it wasn't phrased mm-hmm. that way, but like as I look back on it, I was taught that I had to carry myself a certain way. When we talk about um, this essence of like getting teenage boys not to sag, one way or another, that shit was very annoying, but I totally was in that phase. Like, I embarrassingly sagged my pants until I was a freshman in college. <laughs> but like this whole, you should present yourself better so that you can be viewed better in the sense that you want to preserve your boyhood, but we don't get that. And I was taught that I won't get that. And then you hear on, on that end, you know, black parents teach their daughters about manners and part of the reason we're our i you know part of the reason i think that our parents are so strict on us about manners is to be able to earn respect in that sense not just because adults should get respect but in the sense of trying to make children seem more like children because you hear like you know i've, I've met plenty of white kids who address that their friends parents other adults straight by their first name Yeah, I think part of that, too, though, is especially for black people, um, kind of quote unquote manners. uh, That's like ingrained, I'm sure, from like slavery, Mm -hmm. because you you weren't just going to be talking any kind of way. And, you know, children have never really been respected, like their rights and their autonomy has never really been respected. People are starting to talk about it now. You see. Um, a bunch of like op-eds and articles about the parents saying, if my kid doesn't want to hug you, if they don't want to give you a kiss on the cheek, if they don't want to high five, five you, if they don't want to speak to you, they're not going to, and I'm not going to make them. That's relatively new. You know, like think about being out with your mom as a kid and someone speaks to you and you don't say anything. And it Mm -hmm. might be because I don't, you know, and kids are very perceptive. Like they don't have all of the just bullshit from growing up yet they're not so jaded so i don't want to call them animals but in a way they're i think more based on energy and there's just like a vibe and it's like i'm not i don't want to say hi to you yeah and you could get in trouble speak when you're spoken to this is an adult you speak them and you show them respect and uh yeah there's this idea that just as kids we are forced into, um, you know, being respectful to adults. And as black kids, I think that's kind of where that is ingrained from parents. And, and, and with that, what's also ingrained with parents, especially towards young black girls, is the sense of trying to teach them how they should be able to reduce them being viewed as adults and mm-hmm. trying to maintain that childishness. You know, actually, Actually, I was, I was going somewhere, but I just thought about what happened recently at the track. 
So I coach a young girl. She is about 12. And her mom has, you know, it struts this line of letting her, like, in, in the culture of track and field, like, men and women don't wear a whole lot of clothes. Like, right. it's very normal. They wear, like, spandex. And, you know, in, in the world of track, you don't even notice it. Like, it's just that normal. You just, they're training. Mm-hmm. And so this girl being 12, you know, she, her mom struts this line of letting her do it because maybe, this, you know, the older kids are doing it. You know, the boys might not have their shirts on. Um, the older girls, they might, you know, be wearing a little less because it's just that's just track and field. Right. White, black, Hispanic, whatever. And... You know, there's this line of not wanting her to in a sense that, like, do we want to even introduce why she shouldn't? Because while you don't know how the other people on the track might respond to it, you also don't want to bring that presence to her of, mm-hmm. well, you should cover up. But there's this long tradition of teaching these young you know, girls like, oh, cover up. Because mm-hmm. you don't get the presumption of innocence that, oh, you're just wearing less because you're working out. Yeah. Like you need to cover up because, oh, people are going to look at you this type of way. And the fact that it's adults now looking at you and saying, oh, well, you should cover up because your boobs are starting to get big or your hips are starting to get curved. And so these adults are now projecting these sexualized aspects of their body to what's just normally happening to them as they grow up. Exactly. I bet if you ask... 15 black girls like our age around our age uh if they were at any point told they couldn't wear like shorts in the house if like a male family member or male friend like a like if there was going to be adult men in the house i bet you will find like over half and i said 15 just because i know that you know 15 black women like you can go out and do this i bet you more than half will say, yeah, like our mom, our grandma, our aunt. Some woman in our family told us, you can't wear shorts when there are men in the house. And it's like, it is 87 degrees on in here. It's like 87 degrees in this house. There is no AC. This fan, I wanted to say raggedy at best. (laughs) But this fan is barely working, so and now I have to go put on pants and be even more hot because niggas don't have self-control. Like, is that what you're teaching me at a young age? And this is my house. Exactly. Like, I live here. I don't pay no bills, but I live here because you're my mom and you pay the bills. This, like, why are you even around men? that will look at me with shorts on and start to objectify me. And it's crazy when you think that how this indoctrination of black boys being older, and so when you think about going back down the line of American tradition, these boys are expected to go work mm-hmm. when they're like preteens. So they're now, they're thinking, oh, I'm a grown man. Whereas like, I don't, I coach young white boys. These boys do not walk around like, oh, I'm a grown man. They almost fully accept their childishness. Mm-hmm. And they're like 16, 17 years old. They fully accept their childishness. They're, they're trying to like buck and grow up, but they're very aware of the structure of authority. Whereas even my own nephew, we've had to have some serious moments about, yo, you are literally a child. And I've, mm-hmm. I've had to break it down to him in ways that I didn't, I don't have to, my, these kids I coach, they, 
I don't have to break it down that they're children to me. They can look at my life and look at their parents' life and see, oh, I'm a child. But this indoctrination of culture is so deep ingrained. Like, I got told, when you're 18, my mom's, I'm packing you a bag. Like, you're going to be on your own at 18. And I have countless friends and acquaintances who've been told the same thing. Like, you're going to be out, you're going to be at 18, like, I'm packing your bag, like, boom. And even my nephew, I'm, like, scared that that's going to happen to him. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't get that presumption of innocence. But he almost accepts that upon himself, like, oh, I'm grown. And so now that thing, the same thing happens to black women. And so now you get, you know, these grown adults, black women, black men, who look at these young girls. And because they're already in this ingrained, indoctrinated mindset that we're already grown when we're like 15, 16 years old, right. they're looking at these 15, 16 year olds like you're basically grown. And you're being generous with 15 and 16. It's really... I think, like this study shows, at like a younger, eight, like almost at five, they might not be sexualized at five. Um, but once puberty starts, which can start early, which kind of goes into a point about like our diet, like the the diet of the black community, and and how uh, food that's affordable for people tends to be very unhealthy and it's loaded with so much shit to the point where it's almost um causing puberty to happen early so this maturation this adultification this sexualization starts even earlier because girls are developing earlier and i think before we kind of move on to the ne- oh, you do have a point. I did just want to shout out. So Georgetown, where I gathered a bunch of this information on the uh, adultification bias, they are collecting stories. They're still doing more work. I think they're trying to move into like a legislative process. Um, they have a website called endadultificationbias.org that is pretty interesting. So anyone that's just trying to learn more about that it is specifically centered around black girls um but it's interesting i think it's it's georgetown is a pretty prominent and famous um highly respected law school so if that i don't know makes you feel any better that it's just not like this random thing it's a legitimate study that's happening and they're trying to I guess they're trying to end something that a lot of us already knew existed, but, you know, I guess there's there's steps in the right direction. And, you know, to your point about women being, like, black girls and their mothers having to deal with this adultification as young as five, because the research even shows that it's a thing. There's actually a story that was published... um, on the Washington Post uh, a few years ago. And so this woman talked about her daughter and how this this paints it across the entire timeline of a young black girl's life. At the age of five, this woman said she was at the beach and the this um, white, some white adult had commented at oh, her yes. daughter being curvy 
at yes. the age of five. Mm-hmm. And so that she had to actually, she not she didn't have to, but she decided to make her child dress up like in a bigger t-shirt and these kind of and, shorts uh, at and, the uh, beach. Yeah, and like um, a little dinosaur. one pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas a little white girl can run out on a one piece and no one is commenting on her body in a way, because when we when we look at somebody and say they're curvy, like there's a sexual connotation to that. If I look at you know a grown woman like oh she's curvy, that the fact of saying that it's curvy means I like it. Mm-hmm. And for someone to look at a child that and say that is a sexual comment. That's a sexual comment. Yeah. Like you call you don't. There's certain things that you say like that like curvy. That's like oh that's something about your body, and I'm saying it like that because I like it. Mm-hmm. And for someone to say that to a child is wicked. And this happened to her daughter when she was five. There were things that happened in middle school when this same girl would go, you know, middle school, you go sleepovers with your friends yeah. and stuff Oh, like I know that. what you're talking about, yes. And this girl's white dad had called her daughter fast. Mm-hmm. And that's a word that we hear growing up all the, time. all the time. And, you know, she decided to not let her daughter sleep over with these people's houses. She had to make sure she vetted all these parents out. And she didn't let the girl, she didn't let her daughter hang out with that girl until they were in high school mm-hmm. when her dad realized that well, came around to the fact that oh her child's actually much more chaste while her his actual daughter's mm-hmm. friends were all getting pregnant yeah and then there's an incident where she goes to a sleepover and this was the one time she didn't like overly vet the parents and she gets a phone call late in the night about you know needing to come get her daughter now mm-hmm. and so the ad- adults were sitting there with her daughter and all the other girls were like hiding looking around and it's all white girls and her daughter and they she, her daughter got accused of bringing weed into the house yeah the daughter her eyes were clear all the other girls bloodshot high high as hell her her bags all her stuff didn't smell of raw weed like nothing mm-hmm. stunk of it then over the ensuing days those those girls came over and offered their apologies and the girl who hosted it who was the one who got the weed mm-hmm. came over and apologized and admitted her her guilt wrongdoing, and yeah. wrongdoing and that in the, the house the host's mother had accused her daughter mm-hmm. of bringing the weed into the house and for, for for there's only one thing that can point to that while all the other girls was high she's the only black girl over there not high no one saw her smoke and it's one of those things where it's like, if you've been friends, if your daughter has been friends with a, a, a group of girls, yes, they might want to start doing all types of wild shit and experimenting, whatever. What they didn't think that they need to follow up on was the fact that her daughter, like the host's daughter, um, also had just started dating this boy. That wasn't the first thing in their mind. It wasn't like, oh, you've been friends with this group of girls and y'all have never, like, smoked weed in the house before. But now, you did. I caught you. I think it's the black girl. I think it's your black friend. Not thinking, the only thing that has changed is your daughter just got a boyfriend. And and that's how they actually got the weed, was from him. Which, weed is not that big of a deal. Chill out. Like, it's not that deep. I guess they were 14, so I I understand being concerned. But to the point where you vilify this child without even speaking to the parent. Like, they thought that they could just, like, go at her. And then call the mom and, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's just... And the it, sense, where is it? 
again, back to this presumption of innocence. Yeah. These girls, mm-hmm. high as hell, mm-hmm. had all the evidence of being high, got the presumption of innocence, and yet the only one of them who didn't smoke did not get the presumption of innocence yeah. and got vilified. So I, I hope you all decide to you know look into that and, and dwell on that and reflect on your, your times dealing when you were teenagers, if you are teenagers, looking at these, in, these incidences where you know young black boys are getting treated as adults and viewed as adults by society and these young black girls are getting sexualized and not even just sexualized, their attitudes People talk, complain about oh, girls' yeah. attitudes. I, you know, all most teenagers have attitudes across the board. Most of them. Um, you know, uh, hormones. Ninety-eight percent of them. Like the only teenagers who I've found who don't have attitudes are like extremely shy and unspoken. And mm-hmm. if they don't, it's in their head. Yeah. And yet, it's black girls who their attitudes are the ones that we are so put on front street about. Oh, for sure. Um, even the show, the movie Mean Girls, which was about two white girls who had crazy attitudes. And we're doing crazy ass shit. Doing wild ass shit was still treated as some comedic thing, and it's something that happens all the time because again, they're all young. And this idea that I think they called them like white hot, the black hotties with attitude or whatever, like they, it was like this, they have all this attitude, they're kind of mean, they're kind of rude, whatever, like they look down on us, whatever they were trying to get off. And it's like, you don't like their attitude because maybe they don't fuck with y'all and they let that be known. Meanwhile, you and this girl, you and fucking Regina, have been going back and forth trying to tear each other down, all presenting like your BFFs. I would rather have someone be like, yo, I don't really fuck with you like that. Like, mm-hmm. come, no, sorry, girl, not here for you. Then act like you're my friend. Meanwhile, you're trying to sabotage me and take me down any chance you get. And this, you know, look at black women's attitudes, their sass, their maturation. This starts to play into their adult life when you mm-hmm. look at this studies that have even been done where doctors themselves, you know, say that they don't think black women can feel pain the same way. They don't get treated the same in the hospital. They don't mm-hmm. get treated the same when something's actually wrong with them. You look at the cop who tackled the woman, the girl mm-hmm. at the pool party. You look at, there's a video of this cop fist fighting this woman while she's pinned to the ground on the side of a highway because she's viewed as dispensable and she can take that and that's what she deserves because she could be a threat to me. Exactly. And I think um, this idea that this the attitude the sass the anger it's like i'm sassy or i have an attitude or i'm angry because i'm speaking out about something that that i don't like and because i'm doing that there i mean that happens with white women as well like you get you start speaking out about things and you're kind of vilified but it happens in a different way i might have an attitude i might be angry and you might get some sass because what what I'm pissed off about is deserving of all of those. I'm being treated unfairly. I have to deal with X, Y, and Z. My doctor doesn't listen to me. All the trials and tribulations that black women go through that would justify them being angry and sassy and having an attitude, those get thrown out the window and you're only left with the anger, the sass, and the attitude with no context. Mm-hmm. 
that and 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 then people think that that is just our nature and we're just mad for no reason we're complaining for no reason Mm -hmm. we're being sassy and giving attitude for no reason we're always that way so then we don't have to listen to them we don't have to listen to black women because they're just like that they're that's their nature yeah and what happens is black women sass and their pushback gets viewed as making them almost more masculine and yeah. a threat. Whereas when white women do that, they almost get just pushed away as like ignorant and childish. Look at how we how we think about quote unquote Karen's. Like they are angry mm-hmm. and they are upset when they're calling the police, when they're trying to do whatever they're trying to do. And we kind of like laugh it off it's this funny thing ignorant threats it's it's i think becoming more serious now and the role that white women have played in continuing racism is being called out more i think the whole feminist shit it gets lost um but they weren't these innocent bystanders they have perpetuated a lot of the stereotypes that we live with and they know that and they've kind of played off of that and i'm not vilifying all white women unlike some other people i know that we are not monoliths we can all be different um but there is this kind of consensus that white women are innocent and they need to be protected and they shouldn't and they're not to really be taken seriously so they're able to get unless uh rape is involved and then we have to listen to them and then we take them seriously uh but yeah i mean i don't we could be here all day on that that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself um but yeah there is this shit that kind of exists there yeah, and so what we want you to also think about and to research on your own and take some time to look at is when you think about school suspension rates of black girls, school suspension rates of black boys, when you think about these aspects of what is in the community as resources mm-hmm. that are actually helping kids just can be kids. Right. You go to the suburbs, there's a million clubs and activities for these kids to just do kiddly activities, and you get your soccer mom. The soccer mom stereotypes a white woman, it's not a black sure. woman. Yeah. And when you look at you know inner city or in poor neighborhoods, the access to do just childish things and go play sports and go to clubs and go to acting and all these things and that plays a role in it when you have a neighborhood that doesn't have the resources for children to do childish things Mm -hmm. like playing out on the streets all night is not that much of a childish activity i mean it it is but it's not useful yeah and it's not something that people do anymore and i think uh one of the major issues with that is even when sports exist, like schools might keep a football and a basketball team, um, that's great because it does help some kids who are who like sports, who are good at them, whatever. But you know, contrary to popular belief, all black people are not athletes. Not all black people want to be athletes. So when you only have sport activities, you're allowing a large population of kids to go without anything else to do outside of school. Mm -hmm. 
Where are the book clubs? Where are the acting programs? The sci- after-school the science after programs. After-school STEM art. programs. Art. These are the things that when people talk about, and this is kind of off, off a little bit, but when you talk about people talking about defund the police and refund the communities, these are what, this is largely what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Having resources for kids to do productive things because no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter race, gender, Idle time is not good for teenagers in idle excess. Idle time is the devil's playground. And I so, yes, point. idle time is the devil's <laughs> playground. And when I look at young black kids in poor neighborhoods, there's a lot of idle time. Mm-hmm. When I look at the kids that I coach, these parents spend hundreds of dollars every month mm-hmm. on their kids having packed activities. There's no, there is no idle time for them. Their idle time is to sleep. Yeah. And so that plays a very big role in the development of kids being able to be kids as well as them doing productive activities for their growth. And so I want you to take some time to look into that and think about that. Word. I think You know, that's 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 a wrap for this. I one. think that's a wrap for this. Um I definitely recommend checking out the HBO docs that I mentioned, the Atlanta murder, Atlanta's murdered and missing children. Um, also, the Yusuf Hawkins documentary, and we obviously we didn't touch on everything there. I mean, we didn't even touch on the iceberg, the examples, and the surveys, and um, the articles and sources available. Literally, are never ending. Um, but I did want to, oh, the song, (laughs) I couldn't remember what it was called. The Andre 3000 song where he's talking about, um, this, the situation in Atlanta is called The Ends, if anyone feels like listening to that. So The Ends, what album is that on? Uh, Birds in the Trap, Sing McKnight. Okay. So check out that song. Also, we want you to check out endadultificationbias.org, where it's a storytelling portal that provides a lot of information about adultification bias, opportunities to share stories in a forum of strategies and solutions to elevate the awareness of this adultification bias and really engage in the power of storytelling and centering the voices of black women and girls to help our society be able to move forward. So it's endadultificationbias.org. Definitely check that out. It's through Georgetown Law, uh, who's been doing a lot of research on this, uh, this aspect itself. So that is this episode of The Black Codes. Thank you for joining us. I know that was a little bit heavy, but these are things that we need to know and to be aware of because Mm. as our nation is trying to progress and move forward, there are things that on a large scale we don't address and that this adultification of black children is something that you know, through the white gaze that affects even black people in their own gaze of themselves in a negative way. So we want to be able to really push forward and, and help people learn how to do this better. Yeah, and the stereotypes that are placed on black people, they don't just start when you're 18. You they know? can start at five. They can start at five, and that's a problem. If, if you are starting to look at people at the age of five through, through a fucked up lens, then obviously... You, we can get to where we're at, where actual adults that have more autonomy can 
by like tenfold be vilified you know they could do it with a child they can definitely get that shit off with an adult and trying to fix those stereotypes from a young age I think will help as we get older and looking at black people as an adult you know black adults through a fair and equal lens which is all that we're trying to get it's all that we want so that said it is going on time for brunch and we talked about before brunch being a culture and so we have to live up the brunch culture Mm -hmm. so we're about to go grab some drinks to record some more and it is time to go eat yes so i get like three and a half miles in this morning and now my appetite's starting to kick in it was it was was hanging there for a while but you know it happened a little bit of whiskey i never actually had whiskey just an irish after a run Hmm, it might be an irish breakfast just like the whiskey (laughs) is that what that is i think no there's like an actual irish breakfast but if we're playing up to stereotypes then what we just had was an irish breakfast interesting the things you learned Mm -hmm. i did not know that (laughs) and i did not like you know we talked about this before we started this like i was like real nervous like i don't know if i want to get risky before we start i was an empty stomach and i just worked out i was gonna call you out on this but i was like no let me let donald be great i give him enough shit let me just let him ride and, and live his life. <laughs> I actually don't feel bad. My stomach responded very, very well to this. It was not even two full shots over like an hour and a half period. And so. the big ice block melted. Exactly. Yo, shout out to Savannah. She creates an ambiance. So they she has these like perfect drink glasses that you'd probably get at a nice rocks glasses. Rocks glasses. That's mm-hmm. what they're called. That you'd get at a nice bar. And at a nice bar, not a crappy bar, not a dive bar. You're going to get these at nice bars with a big block of ice that's literally like two by one plus like two I'm inches I'm giving real cocktail long. vibes, you know? Real I'm cocktail giving like vibes. craft cocktail experience for sure. So I got to have that barely two and a half shots throughout the course of this. And like the ice melted, so it got watered down. Yeah, So fine. Um Enjoy your day. Yes. Thank you for listening. Yes. Um, stay tuned for our next series of episodes that are going to be very, very key to helping us, again, understand why the hell America is the way it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so stay well, and we'll see you next time. Bye.